Good morning. Merry Christmas. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, and then you can take another finger and stick it back uh, by Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read some portions from both of those chapters this morning. In Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, why are you helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool? If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the peoples increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she, could not hide him, uh, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. And now in Matthew 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you who don't know, my name is Devin. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. It's wonderful to see all of you. Thank you for coming to worship with us. Thanks especially to those of you who may be visiting family from out of town and uh, decided to get up early to come to church on a Sunday morning. Let's pray quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you come to liberate us from all our captivity. We ask this morning that uh, you would come be our chief shepherd Lord, your prophet said that you would come and would shepherd your people Israel. So shepherd us this morning and let us feast on your word. Give us ready minds, ready hearts. Help us to respond faithfully to everything that you're saying and doing in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick show of hands. Uh, How many of you have lights on your Christmas trees this year? Okay. If you have, keep them up, keep them up. If you have colored lights on your tree, put them down. If you have twinkling lights on your tree, put them down. Okay, look at the hands that are still up. We have just discovered God's elect. These are the ones who will enter into the joy of their master. I've got to say that lighting a Christmas tree is one of my favorite things about the season. Even just this morning, I woke up, I started to hear my son rustling in his crib, but before I went to grab him, I went downstairs and just kind of plugged the tree into the wall and you just get that nice white glow not a blinking colored glow. And I just find that's the perfect way to celebrate the Christmas season every morning, to to welcome the light of the world even in that simple way. But some of you know what it's like when you wake up in the morning and you plug in the tree and something goes wrong. If you can just picture with me Clark Griswold's face in Christmas vacation, plugging in the light, waiting for the waiting for his whole house to be illuminated, nothing happens. I mean, even this week in this church, we had a a moment where one of these strands of lights up here just unaccountably died, and there was a big blank gap where all the rest of the sanctuary was, was rimmed with light. Sometimes there's no current hitting the bulbs, or other times we plug in the lights and we see a flicker, an intermittent flicker, and so we jiggle the wire, and every now and again the light bulb comes back on, and it goes off, and it comes back on, and it goes off, and it just depends on exactly where we manage to hold the wire. But who really wants to stand there with your hands in your Christmas tree all morning, making sure that that one bulb still works? Thank God for the, uh, that we're now living in the days where only one bulb has to go out and not the whole strand. But most of the time, we can see it here this morning out in the atrium in the sanctuary, most of the time you plug in the bulbs, they all light up, and they all stay on. Imagine with me for a moment that every one of us, every human being, is sort of like a light bulb on a giant string of Christmas lights. We're made for a purpose. We're set alongside one another. And when the divine current flows through us, we are all supposed to shine with a steady, solid, solemn glow, bearing witness to the presence of God in our midst. This is why Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. And thank God we're now in a season of light because over the last four weeks of Advent, we've sat for a long time in the dark. 
Advent begins in the dark. Advent is really the season where we have to sit and remind ourselves of the fact that the world around us is still a dark place. That however much we enjoy light, we're kind of like the children of Israel when the darkness sweeps through the land of Egypt and there's darkness in the whole land except in the house of Israel. And it can be tempting to deny the darkness. It can be tempting to ignore it, wish it away, huddle around our little lights. But now we're in the season where we remember that the point to the light that we have in the house of Israel is supposed to go out to the whole world. But we can't ignore the systemic problems in, in Egypt or in the cultures that we live in as Christians. We can't ignore the individual weaknesses and sins, like the temptation to grumble instead of groan, that diminish our light, that make our light flicker. And the dark of Advent, when we really stare at it for long enough, darkness so dark that it can be felt, can be so dark that we wonder why God would bother lighting it up at all. Why not just write the whole thing off? Why not? just condemn the world to the garbage heap of failed ideas. I mean, this, this is like the mystery of the doctrine of creation for all Christians, that at, not just that God created the world and everything in it at one point in time, but that at every moment he consciously decides to continue sustaining it so that it continues to exist. Why on earth would God continue to let something so dark, so broken, so painful endure? Christmas points to the answer. Today we're gonna to meditate on the meaning of Christmas, not so much just by looking at Jesus, who is the light of the world. Nick did a great job of that on Christmas Eve. I'd recommend you all go and listen to the sermon if you haven't already. But instead of looking directly at Jesus, the light of the world, this morning we're gonna look and see what we can see about the people around Jesus by looking at them in his light. Because Jesus didn't come just for himself. He didn't decide from eternity past to become a human being just because it pleased him. Jesus Christ came into the world for a purpose and that purpose was to save sinners. And I think that the Exodus narrative, the story that we just read about the birth of Moses, can give us a really helpful look not only at our liberator but at those who he came to liberate. So let's just kind of walk through the text character by character. Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes across as a horrific villain in this story. I am honestly hard-pressed to imagine a better image of the total corruption of human hearts than to say, look at Pharaoh and look at someone who is so caught up in his system of power that he is willing to look at not people who are presently threatening him, but people who could potentially become a threat to him and then decide that in order to prevent them ever becoming a threat to him, he will kill their children the most harmless, the most defenseless, the least threatening. Not because they are threats, but because they even potentially could. Pharaoh is playing sociological and political chess in the most horrifying way I can imagine. This is the darkest of the dark. Pharaoh is caught by fear. I mean, he's, he's a ruler who finds himself now riding a back of a tiger, but he's so terrified that if he were ever to hop off of the tiger that the tiger might turn and eat him. And so he's doing anything in his power to keep hold of his power, and it's gotta be terrifying and exhausting. This is the thing about Pharaoh, is that his rule is motivated by fear. He's not enjoying his position. He's doing anything he can to hold on to it. But here's the thing about Pharaoh's fear. It's that it's, 
It's genuine fear, but it's not rightly ordered fear. Herod is too worried, I beg my pardon, uh, Pharaoh, not Herod, is so worried about the kings around him and about the slaves under him that he doesn't fear God. Remember that God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15 is that when God brings Israel out of Egypt, he's going to judge that nation that's been enslaving his people and he's going to overthrow it and bring his people out. If Herod's fear was rightly ordered, he wouldn't be worried about the king of Cush or something making an alliance with the Israelites and destroying Egypt from within. He'd be worried about God coming down and overthrowing it. So, in an attempt, a vain attempt to maintain his own security, he orders the execution of all the male children of Egypt. And I think Pharaoh teaches us an awful lot about the practical experience of sin. Once we start abusing and once we start oppressing the people around us for whatever reason in response to whatever temptation, we find ourselves inevitably doubling down on our oppression to maintain our peace and our stability because we're afraid of what would happen if we were to stop. Like if you were the ruler of a military dictatorship today and you had seized power by violence, even if the time came that you wanted to let it go, what would happen if you did? You'd become liable to the very state apparatus that you've been building. That's where Pharaoh is. He's the villain of this story, but he himself is trapped. He's trapped by his own power. It's exactly like Herod. Herod's fear of the children in Bethlehem. The thing to remember about Herod, when he receives the Magi's report that, that a savior, a Messiah, has been born in Bethlehem, is that this is exactly the thing that has always kept Herod up at night. Herod is not a biological descendant of Abraham, and he knows that the hope for a Messiah is that this Messiah is gonna come as David's heir. And if he's not a descendant of Abraham, therefore he's also not a descendant of David, therefore he cannot in any sense be the Messiah. Uh, Trace Herod's family tree, he goes back to Esau, not Jacob. His dad was an Edomite from the south, who converted to Judaism and married a princess from an obscure kingdom called Nabatea. In no way is Herod biologically Abraham's heir. So if David's heir has been born in Bethlehem, well, what's Herod supposed to do? He wants to be seen as king of the Jews. He's propped up by Rome, established as king of the Jews. So if there's this Messiah running around, he's in trouble both with his own people and he's in trouble with the Roman Empire. He's trapped by his power, and so what do trapped people do when they find themselves with their backs against the wall? They go into fight or flight mode, and Herod's fight mode says, I'm going to kill all those babies because this is the only way for me to survive. He's thinking in purely human political terms, but if Herod's fear were rightly ordered, if Herod were a real Jew who was anxiously awaiting for the consolation hope of Israel, he would welcome Jesus with open arms. So, a bit more of the darkness, but I hope even a bit of pitiable darkness. Even the oppressors are caught, trapped. But here's the good news. Thank God, in every generation, he raises up people who are willing to stand against wicked and oppressive rulers. And one of the clearest examples of this, I think, in all of Scripture is the Hebrew midwives. These women are some of my heroes. So they're like Pharaoh and Herod in that they have to decide who and what they fear. 
When the command comes from, Her- uh, from Pharaoh to kill every male child, the midwives have to decide who do they fear more, Pharaoh or God? And the f- midwives fear God, and so they refuse to murder Hebrew baby boys. Think of the amazing courage that takes. I, all I have to do is think back to like, the trials of war criminals at the end of World War II. And if you read through those transcripts, there's a line that you're gonna see again and again and again and again and again. I was just following orders. And, like, these are like decorated, hardened soldiers who, though fighting for the fascists, were incredibly brave in combat. And yet, when it comes down to it and they have to give an account for their actions, I was just following orders is the best they can do. The midwives show a courage that excels even the courage that so many people have displayed in battle. They are willing to look a vicious monarch in the eye and say, no, we didn't do that. But uh, there's a bit of nuance here. They don't just say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. They say, well, uh, we, we didn't do it because we weren't there. We just couldn't get there fast enough. They tell Pharaoh the truth, but not really. They don't tell him that they disobey Pharaoh because of their fear of God and because of their respect for the image of God. They tell an expedient lie. So even the midwives, with all their boldness, still in some ways seem to fall short of some of the other great heroes of the faith throughout Scripture. Think forward a few centuries to Daniel and his friends in Babylon. When they're called before the king to give an account of their actions, they say, nope, we worship the Most High God, we're not bowing down. And they decide they'll live with the consequences. Think about the apostles. When they're called before the Sanhedrin, their own religious authorities, and they explain that despite any command that they're not gonna preach in Jesus' name, they're gonna carry on doing it because it's right for them to obey God rather than human beings. The midwife's courage is real, it's genuine, but the way that they go about living it and expressing it still doesn't quite measure up to the highest standards of biblical courage. Okay, but the midwives aren't actually related to the babies that they're saving. Maybe we'd find greater courage, greater truth in Moses' own family. So let's look at Moses' parents. On the one hand, it seems absolutely natural that parents would love and pity their own children. And they do. They look at Moses and they decide, okay, no matter what, we are gonna keep this baby alive and we're gonna hide him for as long as we can. So they take him and they hide him. And eventually, when they can't do it anymore, they kinda half obey Pharaoh. So that if anybody ever catches them down by the river with a baby, they can say they were going to obey Pharaoh. And they do sort of put Moses in the river. Sort of, but not exactly. Here's the textual detail that trips me up in the story of Moses' parents. It's it's a little phrase that you might gloss right over in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. Moses' mom waits until she sees that Moses is a healthy, strong, beautiful baby. Why wait? One reason for this is because uh, infanticide was incredibly common in antiquity. It was the primary means of birth control in antiquity. It was especially common if a baby was born uh, disfigured in any way. 
infant exposure was the primary means of disposing of unwanted children. So from Greece and Rome and Egypt and Babylon, all around the world, you can find horrific evidence of the long-standing practice of murdering children. Uh, in Greece, in antiquity, for example, if you went to the ancient city-state of Sparta, every baby that was born had to undergo a rigorous physical examination, and if any baby was deemed deficient, they had to take him to a horrendous place called the Tarpeian Rock and leave them there to die. If you were to uh, go and join some archaeologists in an Egyptian garbage dump called Oxyrhynchus. It's one of the most important archaeological sites we know about today because there's tons of letters that were preserved there just from one person writing to another. The sort of face-to-face, back-and-forth correspondence that you don't often really get to study in antiquity. And one of the truly heartbreaking letters that you find there is a letter from a husband to a wife, a pregnant woman, saying, if it's a girl, cast her out and let her die. If it's a boy, preserve him. That kind of sex-selective infanticide was so common in antiquity. And that's why it's important in Exodus 2 that Moses' parents wait until they see, okay, is this, kid, is this kid at least going to be healthy? Even the parents' love and respect for Moses and for the image of God preserved in Moses is still a bit contingent. They do the right thing, but there's an indication that they might have been willing to wiggle. They wait before they take a massive risk and defy the king. But of all the risk-taking and heroics in the story of Moses' birth, I don't think anybody takes a bigger risk than Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter's amazing. She lives at the heart of the empire that's ordering the slaughter of children. She knows, because she is her father's daughter, that you can make a strong case that Israel is, in fact, a direct threat to the survival of her people and her dynasty. She knows that rescuing a Hebrew child from the river might isolate her from her father and from her source of power, prestige, comfort, security. But despite all that, she looks at him, she looks down at Moses, and she takes pity. I think that Moses' daughter is, and the character traits that we see in her here really foreshadows Jesus' mother Mary. When the angel comes to, to Mary to tell her, you're going to bear a child, Mary knows what, what kind of a risk she's taking. Joseph intends to divorce her. Everybody in her town can do the basic math, and they know that there are not enough months between the time when Jesus is born, counting backwards to the day of the wedding. Mary takes a colossal risk. She's willing to receive an inconvenient child that could jeopardize everything that has made her secure up until that moment in her life. But this is what Pharaoh's daughter and Mary have in common. They decide to welcome a child that they didn't ask for despite enormous personal risk. Now, these are all the characters other than Moses and Jesus in the story. And I think that when we kind of walk through them one by one, we can sort them into two categories. And it's all based on how they respond to Moses or Jesus. Do they welcome a child, even a child who's incredibly inconvenient, who challenges everything that they've come to accept, everything that they hold dear, or do they not? Pharaoh and Herod reject the child absolutely. They're too caught up in their power to dare to try and welcome the child. 
The midwives, Moses' parents, Mary and Joseph, Pharaoh's daughter, the Magi, they all welcomed the child. And this decision is crucial, I think, because it reveals basically the proximity of all of these individuals to God or their alienation from him. So those of you who've been worshiping with us over the last few months will know that we're in the middle of a long series on the book of Ezekiel. And for me, in the book of Ezekiel, one of the clearest pictures of the character and nature of God comes from Ezekiel chapter 16, where the way that Ezekiel narrates it, God is like a man who just goes taking a walk in the field. And as he's walking in the field, he comes across an infant that's been left to die, infant exposure, again, being so common. And God's heart is moved with compassion for this infant child, and so he takes the child home, feeds, clothes, bathes, houses this child, and raises her up. God has compassion on the children. And when you remember Jesus himself, back in Matthew 19, even his own disciples think that when children are starting to take up too much of Jesus' time, that Jesus could be doing something better with his time than to welcome little children. But Jesus says, no, let the little children come. There's something about welcoming children with all of their inconvenience that profoundly reflects the character of God and the nature of God in all of us. So, good for the midwives, good for Pharaoh's daughter. But what are we supposed to make of the fact that even the characters who work to save Moses often don't come off looking perfect? They look really human. Sure, Pharaoh and Herod look like all darkness all the time, but the parents and the midwives and Pharaoh's daughter seem more like flickering Christmas lights, intermittently on the money and intermittently off. The midwives are still okay lying. Moses' parents, there's an indication that they may be hedging their bets. What I love about the story of Moses is that it foreshadows the birth of Christ in at least two ways. I mean, first, it does clearly point forward to so many details about Jesus' birth, even coming down to the fact that in both cases, they're going up from Egypt. But the story of Moses' birth and the promised liberation that fulfills the promise to Abraham that God is gonna bring Abraham's descendants out of the land of Egypt and lead them to their own country, half of that is fulfilled with Moses. But another part of it isn't. The part that isn't is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed in Abraham's descendants. And the way that we're all, we all stand at least to be blessed by Abraham's descendants is that another liberator is coming after Moses who will free us from sin, the sort of sin that even lingers on in the hearts of the heroes of the story of Moses' birth. And the fact that Christ comes as a human being into the midst of our Egypt, into the midst of our bondage and slavery, he shows us what it looks like to be a human being that's totally connected with God. Christ is the first light since the Garden of Eden to come on, to shine brightly, and to never flicker. The rest of us, at best, apart from Christ, will only ever occasionally flicker when our light bulb comes into brief contact with the common grace of God that he's never revealed from us. And this is the great news. This, is, this basically, at the end of the day, is why Christ comes, to restore all of us to union with God. And this is the amazing, great good news of Christmas, is that even if the lights are dark, the bulbs aren't broken. The image of God is still intact. 
Human nature is still capable of its original glory and splendor that we lost with sin. So, when I look around at the world, I see lots of pharaohs and Herods, and we have spent a lot of time over the last month thinking about them very carefully and thinking about how awful it is that we all have to live in a world full of pharaohs and Herods. That's part of Advent. That's, that's the right focus of Advent. But when we come to Christmas, we ask a different question. Not where do we see the darkness, but where do we see the light, even if it's only flickering intermittently? And I've got to say that this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love living in a place like Madison. Because in a sense, Madison is a really dark place. I mean, even, even when I was young uh, and my family was in Madison, they would kind of casually refer to it as the Moscow of the Midwest, you know, a place where it was just really not fashionable to be a sort of lowbrow evangelical Christian because we knew all the really smart folks were analyzing the world in terms of like economics and class struggle and uh, scientific atheism. Sure, th- that's been a part of Madison's story for as long as I've known it, but if you sit still long enough, you also see an awful lot of light bulbs flickering intermittently in a place like Madison. Go and look at the hospitals, go and look at the universities, go and look at all of the many, many, many charitable organizations that are celebrating and recognizing and treasuring the image of God that they see in their neighbor. I mean, they they don't put it into that language, but there are a lot of people who are struggling against injustice and struggling for righteousness right now. And... uh, Sure, for all of us, compared to God, even our best deeds are going are gonna to look filthy, going to look like filthy rags. But the image of God is intact in the people of Madison, and there's a lot of light that shines. I, I think about you know, some of the professors in the Department of Education at the University of Wisconsin who are really trying to solve the problem of racial injustice in public schooling in America. Maybe some of them are believers. I'm pretty sure some of them aren't based on what I've read. But they see and they celebrate justice, righteousness, and the good that, that are in the children in front of them, the good that resides and the potential that resides in the little kids whose classrooms they're trying to fix. They're welcoming the little children. So, By way of conclusion, I just want to say a few things. First off, congratulations on enduring Advent. You've made it to Christmas. Now, don't make the mistake of fasting and sitting in the darkness for 40 days only to let your feasting be over in about 12 hours. Remember that Christmas is a season. You have until the 5th of January to celebrate Christmas. So don't stop now. So how do we go about acting in accordance with the truth of Christmas for all of this time? It's one word. It's one beautiful word. Go and feast. Advent was the fast, remembering Christ's absence and his longed-for presence. Christmas, when he is here, is the feast of celebrating his coming and his presence now with us, with all of us, and also the certainty of his future return in glory. Every Christmas dinner is dress rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Every Christmas dinner, every time that we welcome extended family and friends into our house, we're looking forward to that day when we're all united together at his final return when he will be with us never to leave. And that means that Christmas dinner for us is a true feast that's both joyful and solemn. It's joyful because our liberator really has come in the flesh. He really is Emmanuel, God with us, and he really is setting us free. And it's solemn for the same reason. It's God with us. God, who comes to us, not just at the end of time, but who comes to us now on our Christian sister and brother and family members. It's still true that where two or more are gathered, he's there in our midst. And part of him being there in our midst means gathering together for a feast. So here's how I'd want you to celebrate. Here's how I strive to celebrate myself. Make the meals that you would make if Jesus were sitting physically at your table. How would you want to host the King of Kings if he came to dinner? What would you want him to experience and know about you? Eat and drink what you would eat and drink if you were hosting the Savior of the world. Because this is one of the things that's going to separate a Christian feast from mere gluttony. I mean, for an American, like gluttony is often our baseline. We, we, try, we try to numb the pain of the darkness of what we would call Advent, just by overcoming our senses with pleasure. It's totally disconnected from reality, and that's why it's a sin. It's also a sin because it distracts us from the true beauty of what it means to feast like a Christian. We're not trying to numb ourselves from anything. We recognize what the truth is. We recognize that Christ is with us now. We recognize that Christ is present in every one of us. And so when we sit at the table, we sit down to eat and drink in the presence of God. Whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. So eat one slice of pie more than you normally would. (laughs) Have one more cookie than you think is probably reasonable. Because you are celebrating the true redemption of the world, of all creation, and the possibility of redemption for all human beings when you sit down to feast. You're not greedy for pleasure, but what you are is acknowledging that God made the world for good, that God made human beings good, that even now, in the midst of the darkness, there are a million billion light bulbs that can be connected back into the original current so that they shine with their full radiance and so that all humanity rises up to the fullness of Christ and exercises its place of dominion in the world, of, in the, in the world again. That what we surrendered at the fall can be regained in Christ. That's why we feast. Celebrate because Jesus comes to you and to me now. So go and enjoy the feast that you would enjoy if the face looking at you from across the table was the face of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come in the flesh to set us free. We thank you that you are our liberator and that we are the people whom you have liberated. We ask that this year and this season, we'd keep the feast faithfully and that your gospel would go forth truthfully and that you would continue to set free all those who are pressed by the work of the enemy. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we respond in worship today?